Okay. Oh. Um, welcome, everybody. And this is the unprepared podcast. That, yes. That takes place at H House. And um, we are so fortunate today to be um, talking to Elizabeth Kurlikowski. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Bonnie. <laughs> Hello, all. And um, Elizabeth is our own queen of poetry. We call her because she has done so much for poetry in Kalamazoo through all the work that she has done through Friends of Poetry and probably a lot of other things that I'm not even aware of. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought we could make sure to bring some of that out. Okay. If this were one of those podcasts where the, the host is prepared, mm -hmm. then I would have done a lot of research and found out what exactly you have done. But I actually think it would have taken a lot of time because because you've really done a lot, Elizabeth. Well, you have better things to do. <laughs> so what I know about is the Friends of Friends of Poetry, which is a really important organization. And how how long has have we? Did you were you one of the founders? No, I was not. Martha Moffat. I think Judy might have known her. I don't know. Um, Martha Moffat started in 1976. So we're how old are we? Someone do this math. Forty. Yeah, 47 or 46. Get a bunch of writers together. <laughs> Nobody can do math. Okay, so it's a 47-year-old organization, and we have done a lot. I've been really happy with it. I've been with it probably for 40 years. Yeah, and uh, what's, I mean, the events that you do are really fun, and the publications. Mm -hmm. We've had many events, and we used to have more before the pandemic, and, uh, yeah, we publish books now with Celery City. We have a chapbook contest every year. And the kids' contest. We have the longest-running kids' poetry contest in Michigan. The poems that ate our ears, so that's good. And the, what was the reading event that you always used to do at the museum? That was a really oh, fun one. Oh, I love that one, Artifactory. That was great. That was where we had people in the community write about stuff that was in the community or in the museum and that that we had such good audiences for that it was wonderful because a lot of people who liked museum stuff would come and poetry people would come and the audiences got bigger every year and then the museum canned it yeah why did they decide not i think to because it? tom Dietz retired oh and he, it and was, he his... was the person who did it and the other person didn't didn't want to do it <laughs> Isn't that, you know, that's, you bring up something really cool that like whenever we, you know, we're all, most people in this room are really interested in literary events per se, we'll mm -hmm. go to things, but you know, any way you can get them mixed up with something else mm -hmm. and get people who wouldn't normally go to a literary event. Now what's made me really happy is some people up in Bel Air in the northern part of Michigan, heard about Artifactory, and they are now doing Artifactory. So I gave it to them. I said, oh, you can use the name. Go ahead. Is it they do it for a local museum? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really pleased. Oh, that's great. And, then, <laughs> and also, but didn't you also allow it that it, it didn't necessarily have to be in the museum, but it could, something it that could be. It could be around be, here. Yeah, some, <laughs> something historic. Right, or, right, right. Yeah, that was really fun. Um, and all of this work that you've done in the community, you did while you were teaching full-time. That is correct. <laughs> at Kellogg Community College. Correct. So you have had an influence on many students. I hope so. <laughs> I still, I mean, I still run into your students all the time. Do you? Great. Yeah. And they, are, they talk about that they still write poetry. I mean, have you found that? that you I'm friends with a lot of them still, so I know that they write poetry and have babies and <laughs> do all kinds of other kind things. Kind of so. like you did. Kind of like that, yeah. They were great. I love my students. Yeah, and how long did you teach? I taught there for four, 20 years. Yes. Before that, I taught around, and I was a poet in the schools, which was interesting. That was a pro that was a program that doesn't. That was exist. a program that the state had that does not exist anymore. Okay. But the best thing they had, I was in Bangor. I got a grant for three years to be in Bangor, 
to be a poet in the schools. I could bring in other poets and pay them. It was a fantastic program. And the writing in our contest after that program ended, tanked. It wasn't nearly as good. The writing is not nearly as good now that there's not real poets in the schools. Was it actually a full-time job or kind of a part-time? It was full-time. Wow, what a great, and it was through KPS? Or? No, it was through the state of Michigan. Wow, what a great, well. It was a great program, it was fantastic. Was it federally funded? Hmm? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It was great. Herb Scott did a, a ton of it. Right, yeah. yeah. I remember that. And also, while you were teaching, you got your PhD, while you were teaching and doing all this, you got your PhD at I Western. did, I did get my PhD because Kellogg would pay for the whole thing and then I got a raise when I got it. So I would be kind of a moron not to get a PhD. <laughs> it's kind of funny, you know, the first, the first time I ever came across you, you know, you are so much known as a poet. My first interaction with you as a writer, believe it or not, was your winning entry to a fiction contest. I know. <laughs> So you chose, you also seem to have been able to write whatever you wanted. I do like to write whatever I want to. I write, I write everything. And I don't decide when it's going to be until I've started it. So I don't know. It's just some things need to be written about in different ways. Are you writing? I mean, I, mostly you're writing poems. Is that true? I'd say mostly. Yeah. But you're still writing fiction. Yes. I write, yeah. I write essays, I write stories, I write haiku, I just, I write on the wall, I just write, I just, I don't know what to say, it's just what I do. I know that, you know, that's the main thing I want to ask you about, is like, this, like you truly have a writing life in a profound way, I mean, more than almost anybody else I know. Hmm. And it makes, and you know, I want to know what that means. I mean, what I don't, means. I don't know what it means when you talk about that either. <laughs> I know. Well, it's probably good if neither one of us know. But it <laughs> seems like, I mean, it's just, I'm interested in, like, why the writing, I mean, many people now want to have a writing life. They mm -hmm. want their life to be a writing life. And you've done it somehow or other, and at kind of, you know, maybe some sacrifice, but you found a way to make, make a living while you're doing it, mm -hmm. but to devote your life to writing. Basically. And how does that, how do you think a person is different? I mean, how, who would you have been if you weren't a writer? I have no idea who I would have been if I hadn't been a writer. But I think I was destined to be one because of, I had a very tumultuous childhood. And so in order to deal with that, I had to tell myself stuff about it you know I had to make up stories about it because nobody was explaining anything to me about what was happening so I made it up myself and then that just became really comfortable to make up my own stories about everything and so like history at school not good because I like made up my own versions but no I just I was saying to somebody earlier that I was I was born to be a witness and so I'm a witness that's my thing I witness and I was a witness as a child, and I kept being a witness because that was the only thing I knew how to do, in a way. You want me to expand on that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. When I was three, my mother died, and my father did not want to have... She died in childbirth with my sister, and my father did not see himself himself as anything but a young kind of bachelor so he gave us away after a year to my maternal grandparents then he finally met a woman who wanted daughters and so he went to take us to a drive-in movie one night but instead he kidnapped us and my sister still thought we were having fun but I'm in the car going this is not good um, and then he kept us for about nine months and then he took us back to visit my grandparents and left us again for good. So to figure that out, without any adults telling you anything, you had to work some. I had to work at that to figure out what was going on. And I came up with, I was like, by the time that was all done, I was six. Oh, so what happened before 
It was a lot. It was a lot to happen. But that's why I think I'm like I am. And I have hypervigilance, which people who have trauma early on. But what a great gift for a writer to have hypervigilance. I mean, I remember everything. I can tell you everybody I went to grade school with. I mean, it's, it's actually a good thing in a way. So you have a very good memory. I have a great memory. And I, being raised by my grandparents, I am incredible at trivial pursuit. Because <laughs> you knew old people. I stuff. know all kinds of old people stuff. Yes. <laughs> wow. So, but that was—I mean, I think that part of life. So, there was that part of life that was internal, but that never. Nobody ever like nobody ever talked about my mother. When my dad took us to be with his next wife and her sons, their father had died. So there's four kids in the house who have just lost a parent, and no one ever mentions anything about that. You're just supposed to go on, just go on. So it was... When was that? That was like in, that was when I was like six and seven. And this... In the 50s, late 50s. And your sister was how old? My sister, well, my sister is three years younger than me. So she was... She was little. She didn't really know what was going on. She didn't know. No. And so you felt you needed to tell her or talk with her or help her? I felt like I needed to be her mother, really. You needed to I did, because, yeah, because I could see she didn't have one. She got along great with my stepmother they really both like barbie and clothes and uh, i did not care for barbie so <laughs> so i spent a lot of time in a closet reading because no no because she i mean it was really been hard to explain to her that we had completely different childhoods because i was really wounded and she was everybody's darling you know, because she never had to experience any of that stuff. So, and she was really cute. <laughs> but I forgive her now. But she did not become a writer. She did. Oh. <laughs> she has written a beach novel. And it's, if you have to read about your sister writing a sex scene, it's just gross. Um, and she's working on another one now about cryptocurrency. And she does theater. And she was an executive with Wells Fargo. She went for the big money. I went for the PhD. <laughs> yeah, no Which money. was slightly more money than without the PhD. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. It was. Well, all of this, none of this seems to have gotten in the way of you being astoundingly prolific. I... Yeah, I am. I try and write every day. I don't, but I try. And even and Kathy Maguki has been very inspirational. It's just, even if you try and write every day, it still counts. <laughs> even if it's like crap, it still counts. <laughs> just sitting down. Just sitting know, down and doing it. Counts. Or not even sitting down. I, I find I take notes on all kinds of things now. And I'm like, why is this piece of paper here? Oh, because of what's on the back. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. How many books do you I don't have? Know. I know. I wonder if some you over even there. knew. I think there's like eight or nine. Uh-huh. I don't know. There's chat books and books and. I count ten. Okay. Uh, I think you'll have more books than this. Okay. I have like a big pile of manuscripts at home that I need. Oh to. really? Oh God! So yes. you have unpublished. Manuscripts I have many right unpublished now. manuscripts. I know there's way more than that because I went to a local sale that had um, these amazing compilations and anthologies from the 70s in Kalamazoo, and you were in every single one of them, and they're not over there, so I'll bring bring you because I bought them all. I was like, these are little treasures. I'm sure that I have a room full of, and this was one thing I wanted, now I wish I didn't. Carol Arnett was a writer up in Mount Pleasant a long time ago, and I went to his office once, and he had a shelf of his publications, and I thought, oh my God, that's what I want someday. Now I have a whole room full of publications, and it's just like, oh my God, what am I going to do with all this stuff? But 
yeah, so I guess I've achieved my dream. <laughs> Having too many books. <laughs> but, yeah, I want to keep writing. Yeah, I can't imagine you not writing. I can't either. And you have been very helpful to many of us local writers. I Your critiques of our poems have been very helpful to people in this room and beyond. Not so. just mean. <laughs> I have actually never seen you be mean beyond, I mean, I guess, I guess, I mean, do you, I mean, you know, you're not mean. You are. I'm mean in here. Are you? But I'm not mean outside. (laughs) (laughs) I think mean thoughts. You do. I do, but then I try and. I try and make it nice when it comes out. Well, but I do think it's very helpful to be able to say as a critic when something is not working. I mm-hmm. mean, if you can say that in a nice way, that's mm-hmm. great. But I do think that many of us need that. We need to hear when something isn't working. Well, Sydney Peters, who is in this room, and I are working on a book. And we were working yesterday. She's doing the photographs for a poem, a long poem that I wrote. And we were sitting there, I'm going, like, No! I hate that. She's like, I want it. I don't want it. I want it. Okay, fine. Wait a minute. These are your own works? These are my, my, let me talk about this, okay? Okay, she, okay Elizabeth's holding something that is looks like a hollowed out bone that has been polished to a gloss. Yes, it is a utensil of some sort that a friend of mine made as he was, he was a, a woodworker and as he began his slip into dementia, he started carving these fantastic utensils. And I didn't know where it was coming from. I just knew that he couldn't remember what he'd seen the night before and stuff. And so once um, friends figured out what was going on, because he has no family, so we've been taking care of him. But he carved 21 of these beautiful utensils, and then he was done. And he's never been back into his shop. I'm trying to get him to sell Sydney some stuff, but he can't. He can't part with it yet. But anyway, so I really wanted to get these displayed because I thought they were fantastically beautiful. So they're going to be in an art show at the Richmond Center in September. In September. It's yes. Friday. Like February, I mean, Jan, September, sorry. September 22nd. September 22nd is the opening, yeah. It's the opening, but I believe it opens in August. Yeah. So you can walk through it. And this is a project called Photosynthesis that's been going on a while. And, like, really a long time. And this is our second exhibition, and it's really great. I mean, it's full of really well-known artists in the area, and it all deals with the topic of photosynthesis. But I thought the wood in this went with it. And then I wrote a long poem to go with it. I wrote a stanza for every utensil. And <laughs> you can laugh. That's fine. It's really hard to come up with some of them. And, um, and then I kept sending this like 24 stanza poem out. And nobody wanted to publish it. And then I typed it up as prose. Right away, I got it accepted. So, bingo. So, yeah, prose and poetry, very close. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, isn't that the thing? The structure. It's all Mm -hmm. form and structure. Yeah, and I, like, this is what the prose version of it looks like, but it's, Sydney's going like, they need to be square, and I said they are square, really, but that's just the prose version. Yeah, in the and if they're published, they'll be shorter and mm-hmm. chunkier. Mm-hmm. They'll look more like chunks. Yeah, and you you have done a lot of uh, poetry that goes with artwork. I love doing acrostic stuff. Meeting Mary Hatch was like a crucial thing in my life. We were at a party at Arnie Johnston's house, and I knew who Mary Hatch was, and I loved her painting. And so I went up to her and I just said, "I would love to write to your paintings," and she said, "Great." And then a year went by, and at the next party at Arnie's, um, she was there, and I said, let's really do that this time, and so we did. And she would send me a couple of paintings without titles, and then I would write stuff and send it back to her, and she liked it, and we're still doing it. We're working on volume two. Sydney's holding up the book now, Heart Speaks. And so this book is all Mary. Mary it's all Hatches Mary's paintings are... and my poetry that goes with it. Oh, it looks beautiful. So it really is beautiful. 
And how is that? How was that published? That how did we do that? I mean, was it through an art publisher? No, or no. A- we had it accepted by a publisher that lived briefly in Grand Rapids a few years ago. I can't remember the name of it. Oh. Caffeinated Press. Oh yeah. They yeah. thought they thought they knew way more than they did. Yeah. Yeah. And so they accepted it, published a copy. We hated it. So then we did it ourselves. River Run Press. River Run Press, right in Parchment. Yeah. And Linda Zuska laid it out. Yeah, so you had control over what yeah. it looks like. Because yeah. it does seem like with the artwork, it's a different... Oh, Mary was totally... Mary's... These, the book is arranged according to colors. Like, that's not how I would arrange a book. But Mary's like, this painting goes great with this painting and this one. <laughs> Fine, whatever you want. I don't care. <laughs> you were just writing in black and white. I'm writing in black and white however you want it to go together. Since they don't go together, it doesn't really matter, you know. So it was fun. It was really great working with her. I love her. She's a wonderful person. She's another older person who's very alive. <laughs> we like our older people We alive. like our older people <laughs> alive, God damn it. Thank you very much. You're yes, welcome. Thank Thanks you. for being here. <laughs> I have so much respect for you and for all the work that you've done, especially in the community. And um, thank you for like sharing everything about your past and childhood because it really brings a whole other dimension to like how you've written and evolved and made a miracle out of that situation. <laughs> and I personally think there should be like a literary monument to you in terms of art and just. From the perspective of, you know, being involved in the marketing of artists and writers and understanding how there's that whole other gross, icky dimension to not only being the one that creates the work and has this come out of you and is so vibrant and alive right now, 2023, to offer and share, there's this piece where you have to like almost sell it now in Mm -hmm. a different way and have people be aware and there's like people who are in our town who don't understand who you are and have respect for that. So how does that come out sometimes? Like, how do you deal with it now? Or how do you feel about, like, putting your work out there or having it, you know, um, that marketing piece to it to just to generate and interact with more things? Does it, is it a thing that you consider when you're doing work now? Or do you not? I don't consider it when I'm doing. I just do what I do. But, um... I think there should be a monument. <laughs> Not really. Um, There's so many great writers in our town that should be, you know, that people no, should know I, about. I just feel like, I feel like one of the things that I do really well is organize things. So I found that my gift for organizing is well used with the, you know, friends of poetry. And I like doing that. I like bringing people together. I like having things happen. I like... I just like having things happen. I think that's it. Because everybody can sit around, but you got to do something like you're doing something now, which I think is great. But we should have done this at the same time. Like 20 years ago, you should have been doing this. You mean before you got your RV? Yeah, before we got the RV. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um... We were hoping that you would be willing to read some poetry to us, maybe for 20 minutes or so. Well, I'd read something. And we could break it up a little bit if you wanted to. Read as long as you want to. um, Well, I went to my bookshelf, which is, of course, full of my books. And I picked out some that had things in them already from readings I'd given. Oh, you mean like sticky notes? Yeah, and I was curious to see if I'd sticky noted the same things in each one, but I did not. So they're all different. So what do you want to hear about? I don't know. I'm hoping... I, I have a secret love for your poems about... The Family Cottage. I don't know why. You um, do like those. I really do. I mean, I, I mean, in Elizabeth's family, there's a family. And now that I've heard Elizabeth's story laid out in this way, like it does, I, I'm actually not sure, like, now what part of the family that cottage, can, how that cottage connected. It is really but. difficult to, because my grandparents had a cottage. 
and that's the cottage. My dad had cabins, so there's the cottage. I wasn't overprivileged, and the cabins. It's too much. <laughs> I, do, I do like children, troubled children in the water, I guess. Troubled children in the water. Or what near is, the water. See, well, so those are the poems I like of yours. Well, that's not what I'm going to read. Because <laughs> it's not marked in here. Oh, there's some water in this one. It's frozen. Is that okay? Where I am going to enjoy whatever you choose okay. to read. Okay. This is called Courier and Ives. This is with the stepmother that loathed me, and I hated her as well. Bud takes us, Bud is my dad. Bud takes us ice skating at the inlet, a smooth channel of ice onto the big lake. We are dressed beautifully in expensive, oily-smelling wool and unquiet corduroy. Bud builds a bonfire with crystallized driftwood by some downed logs where Phyllis poses with Indian blankets in a thermos of cocoa. Her boy's thick black skates slash the ice as they fight over each rock, each stick. Sis carries her baby deer. They are dressed alike. Phyllis loves Sis because she was born with amnesia. I came with memories. We have white skates that catch the setting sun like golden teeth as Bud chases us. When everyone is breathless, we head to the fire for hot chocolate. When my cup is under the spigot, nothing is left. Phyllis smiles. We had a war. We had a huge war. Well, the good thing is that you, as the poet, you get to win. I <laughs> felt like I won even then, <laughs> which I'm sure made me a really obnoxious child. I, I'm sure I was horrible to this woman, but she was horrible to me. So it's all fair. I'm so sorry. <laughs> My phone is on. Do not disturb. So... Um, yeah, yeah, but you do write a lot. You, you have a lot of poems from childhood. And do you, are they mostly true? They are true. They are true. Okay. Like, this is my autobiography of my childhood. And then this one. <gasps> okay. Your table. That's okay. Don't worry about the table. Your books are there. <laughs> the Pocket Prof. This is one of my best sellers. Not really, it's a grammar book we put together at Kellogg. <laughs> but it was really fun to put together a grammar book. Fun, Thank actually. you, man. A grammar poetry book. Well, that fun. would be a good idea. So, was I going to read something right then? Yeah. And then I interrupted myself by... Um, this book, Last Hula, I wrote when my dad was dying. And... I would go down there and visit, and then I would come back, and I'd write, but I never read anything over again, because I just needed to write it down, and then I looked at it all later on, after he was gone, and then I saw that I had, like, a book, but I didn't really think about it at the time, because I just needed to do it. Um, so, and by the time, I have to say this, he was a terrible father, terrible but he was a fantastic grandfather. That's when he achieved his ultimate glory. He was a really great grandfather. And what we did, like Easter in my family, we would go down to Stevensville where he lived. We'd pile into vans, me and my kids and my brother and his kids. We'd go to a Kmart or a Walmart. My dad would say, be back here in 20 minutes. You can each spend $25, go. <laughs> that was our Easter. <laughs> The children thought it was great. $25 I can spend of my own. Oh, my God. And so, and then we'd end up and there'd be, he'd have a huge line of stuff and we'd be checking out and filling. The, anyway, it was crazy. It was crazy stuff. But so he was good at that. That's what I wanted to say. He was good for something. <laughs> um, I don't know what I want. Oh, let's. I read a couple of them. To give us a flavor. I mean, okay. he was also really a character. He was a character. Oh, maybe I'll read that one first. Where like he, those who didn't have to have him as a father really enjoyed him, right? Yes, everyone loved my father. <laughs> well, he was really entertaining. He would sit around and talk about how he and Mel Torme wrote the Christmas song when they were in college. 
<laughs> and he said, Milt Gourmet's real name was Bob Faber. I've looked this up. It was not. And he had a hernia operation in Canada. And he said that his roommate was Willie Shoemaker, the jockey. And Willie Shoemaker was getting all these flowers. So my dad sent himself flowers from the Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> That's the, that's the people I come from. So you know, like you shouldn't find it hard to believe that I write. Okay, these are about his ears. He had really big ears. Earache. The dad borrowed his ears from Mr. Potato Head and kept them. They were flesh-colored at first, but he broiled them to perfect pitch on the golf course and then froze them snow-plowing with his head out the window of his Bronco. He stewed them in gin and tonic and smoked them with camels until they were the ideal medium for flowery cancers that had their own culinary needs. A surgeon filleted his right ear, the tenderloin, and stuffed it with Rush Limbaugh. At the end, they wore scales like sunfish. Those ears were the color of Merlot, a furred, rich loam his daughter could almost plant a kiss in. <laughs> He was pretty funny. Uh, when, this is not funny, but when he died, I mean, I was there when he died, and my stepmother and I are leaning over him, and he was, he was a trickster. He was a kidder. So he took what we thought was his last breath. Silence. We're like, we're sad. And then he breathes again. We burst out laughing. It was just like, so bad. You're dead. You breathe again. You just are terrible. So... It was just, I never thought that I would feel that way when somebody had just died, but it was so weird. Okay, read another book. Yes, ma'am. Well, I won't read from the dead book. Let's see what we have here. What did I mark before? Queen? So he ran a, didn't he have a used car dealership? No, he no, would or, be perfect for that. What, he was a beer distributor. A beer distributor. So he was a professional schmoozer. <laughs> Grill steak like Bud does. Stack almost anything in the fire pit. This is up at the cabins. Including plastic, but make sure the percentage of plastic is less than that of natural substances, such as furniture, shingles, paper plates, mousetraps with catch, magazines, and crumbling K-pop life belts. Make a gin and tonic. Douse pile with gasoline. Great strike anywhere kitchen matches across a rock. Light cigarette. Throw match on pile. When flames purr, not roar. Sit on rock and drink another gin and tonic. Continue smoking. Tell whoever else is around the fire about writing the Christmas song with Mel Torme. <laughs> Point out the skyline of Minneapolis over the small lake, although it's two states away. Throw a grate across the fire pit when the coals are orange nuggets in an ocean of ash. Arrange stakes on the map of embers. Sit in the line of fire so tears have an external cause. Fork each steak onto the turkey platter and carry quickly in flesh seared with family history. Just, just to hold it up, these, these poems all are like kind of a chunk. What do we call it? They're kind of like a... They're prose poems. Yeah. This is like, these are the first prose poems because this book was written in 2005. And people weren't writing prose poems as much then as they are now. Why do you think you chose to, wrote, to write these as I can prose tell you poems? exactly why. I went to a writer's conference out at Amherst, and I went to study with some writer I really admired, but she got sick. So instead, the writer they had was Leslie Newman, who wrote uh -huh. Heather Has Two Mommies and a bunch of other books since then. I didn't know her at all. She had us write these little she had us write these little things. And I was like, once she told me about that, I was like, this is it. And I just kept writing them. So I really owe it all to her. And so certain forms of material just came out with mm -hmm. in that. Finding of that. that form was really great because it's like, it's like a little box you can put this memory in. Here it is, right here. You know, and I, I still think the prose poem is great for that, for just really encapsulating one thing. 
Yeah, almost like if you had an anecdote that you'd always carry mm-hmm. around, that would be a good form. Yes, I think that. like the Reader's Digest, reading humor in uniform and life in these United States <laughs> when I was a kid and improving my vocabulary um, <laughs> was all really essential to how I write now, I think, you know? I love those little anecdotes in there. Did you read the Reader's I, Digest? Yes. Those were always around. That was always in the bathroom, yes. That is true. I forgot about that, that they had all those little chunks. Yes, they did. They? Life in these United States, humor in uniform. And there was one other one. For those, those, of you. those were the only sections I read. I oh, yeah. The articles. Oh, oh, no, wait. Susan and I read an article once. We read a story once, and I think you remember this also, about a girl who was riding in a sleigh with two other little girls, her kids, and they got stuck in a blizzard. And we've talked about this, and she she put herself over the kids, and she froze to death, and they lived. And that was in the Reader's Digest, and I was like, oh, my God, that's a great story. A lot of quicksand. A lot of quicksand. <laughs> There's quicksand stories in the Reader's Digest? Oh, yeah. <laughs> a certain kind of drama was preferred. Yes, oh, yes. A weather, quick weather drama. Weather-related. Weather-related. Nobody's rip, at fault. Did you rip them out ever and keep them? No. Like, no, no, because we couldn't deface them. Oh. They were the Reader's Digest. Oh. <laughs> okay. This was literature. Yeah, literature. <laughs> That's funny. Good. Well, let's have another oh, poem. Okay, fine. Uh, or, um, I mean, and eventually you will read something about your grandmother. Eventually. My grandmother? I feel like I've read that. Don't we have? We see you a lot have. of poems about your grandmother. <clears throat> Oh, I could read about how bad I was. Oh, this is. Oh, we would like that. Okay, well, I could read about how bad Bud is, but I was bad too, so this is called So. Bud says, If you say so to me one more time, I'll slap you. I say, So, and glare at him. He turns away, taps out one cigarette, shakes his head, and sighs before he shakes loose the Zippo's hood. Slow drag. Later, I listen to the grate, and Grandpa says, She's willful! The slap of cards, counting, dragging themselves down the street. Both smoke. Gran must be standing at the table, hands on her hips, impatient with the pace of the conversation. 15-2, 15-4, and knobs is five. Tick, 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 tick. You've got to do something, bud. What? What can I do? He really does want to help, but since he can't be here, all they can do is offer cash. A car when I turn 16. Watches, rings. I don't wear jewelry. Gran says... Bud, you've never been able to say no. Sometimes you have to draw the line with them and stop talking all the time about how cute sis is. How do you think it makes her feel? Bud says, she understands. We're just alike. I know what I'm doing. Grandpa says, she walks around downtown barefoot. She's playing pool at the Golden 8-Ball. Three for six and a pair is eight. I don't know what to make of it. Bud doesn't say anything back that I can hear. Grand starts the washer. After I finish my homework, the logistics of smoking a joint while dangling from my window, I go down to say goodbye. Sis and Bud play Scrabble. He's planning his tomorrow glazed by the torpor of her play. I stand by the table and say goodnight as woodenly as possible. I am an unforgiving plank. He stands awkwardly, hugs me, stuffs a 20 in my hand. Don't tell Gran she'll kill me. So... <laughs> I was so awful. <laughs> did you really play? Did you go I was, downtown barefoot and play pool? Oh, yeah. I got my grandfather called me into his office one day and said, because he had an office downtown, he was an insurance agent. He said, You're embarrassing me walking around downtown barefoot. I said, Nobody knows I'm connected to you in any way. He's like, I don't care. <laughs> it didn't make any difference. That's funny getting called into your grandfather's office. I know. Especially since it's an insurance office. I know it. And especially since like he was busy avoiding my grandmother and eating breakfast and playing cards with people she wouldn't have approved of. It was great. There were all these secrets. It was just lovely. And did you know did you feel like because you were this witness that you knew all the secrets? Mm-hmm. You went around and found all the secrets. Pretty much. I was an investigative reporter. Um, no, it's just, you can tell when people are lying pretty easily, right? So 
my dog was sick one day. And the next morning I got up and she wasn't there. And I said, where's Topsy? And they said, she ran away. And later that afternoon, I found her grave. So they didn't have a lot. I just, adults that lie, I just can't stand that. I didn't like being lied to as a kid. I don't like being lied to now. What about when your students lied to you? I hated that. I felt really bad once. I told the student, I mean, there were several students that cheated on a test. It was in a class that was on TV. I saw them. I saw them cheat. And I, I just wrote them all, and I said, you all flunk this. Um, you'll be really lucky if the one guy, if I don't tell your dad, who works at the college. And then after I read them out, one of the girls was killed in a car accident. And I felt, I felt so bad. She was guilty, but I felt really bad about it because that was our last interaction, and that, that was sucky. But she cheated. I hate that about students. Those of you who are teachers, you know, that's awful. We like our students alive. I like them alive. Oh, I had a wonderful student at Western who was killed in a, a sledding accident. It was tragic. Just because I have this poem I want to read about Vietnam. It's really long. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. About Since we're talking about horrible tragedies, horrible, let's well, go this, big. Let's no, go this big. is like, it's a horrible tragedy for me. When you hear this, this is called Soldiers, and I, during like that time, I mean, I was in high school when they had the lottery, and I don't know if some of you will remember that, that they had it on TV, and they called people's numbers, and the next day at school, like, our quarterback was number one, so on, um, and they would come on the intercom and announce when people's brothers had been killed in the war, so anyway... When, so this I'm is, sorry, when, okay, so this was during the... This is Vietnam. So they would, they would announce? This? They would. They'd say, bing, Jerry Vogel was killed in Vietnam yesterday morning. Oh. And Penny Vogel sitting in the class, you know, and you're just like, fuck, this is oh. terrible. Yeah, they, I don't know, didn't they do that at your schools? No. Maybe it wasn't a big enough school. We, had, <laughs> we were a really big school. Okay, so this is long. Again, don't judge. The spring I lost my virginity, we were losing or at least not trying to win in Vietnam. I only fucked vets. It was this patriotic act of the least I could do. And the older, the better. I knew a vet who'd come home before I knew there was a place he could have been. I owed them that, my body, didn't I? They put their asses on the line for me, for our country. We owed them. We owed them, didn't we? I swept their scars for information, looked into a thousand bloodshot eyes, and wondered what I'd miss by being a girl. Fucking was the closest I would come. They were the Midwest Jims and Tims and Toms, except the ones who returned with only initials. So much had happened. A couple of letters, all that was left. Their foreheads gleamed with a different sun rising. A fight more or a light more orange. They were haunted, and I wanted to read their minds. I wanted a transmission of insight in that moment Union created. They wanted to rip, pound, twist, tear, dictate, taste, rend, heal, repeat my body. It was perfect. We all just wanted to feel something. I wasn't the only one. Other girls like me felt guilty for having low lottery numbers the next day at school after that first televised drawing. The number one draft, our quarterback, huddled with the guys crying. Automatically excluded from slaughter by sex, I became a soldier of the sheets, underneath or over, in my hand, between my legs, in my mouth, in his mother's house. I did this for my country. I wanted the forbidden truth that permeated the air vets breathed, the semen they ejaculated or withheld, because it was too much like dying. Ghosts I wanted to flesh out and color with my desire for life. My empty mind I wanted filled with their silence and their stories. I wanted the guy next to me to light the joint and have the VC pick his head off. No matter how many joints I lit, it never happened. I just kept getting high, kept on looking in their wallets while they slept, finding thickly made-up Asian women, their addresses, vows of undying love in a child's hand. I never knew what my cousin Steve saw in Vietnam or did. He drowned in booze when he came home, but he got used to it. Ultimately, he needed the real thing. We went to the big lake. 
Steve stood at the St. Joe Lighthouse, screaming into the breakers, letting them smash into him again, again, grinding his bones into the rocks. He felt nothing. He started to swim to Chicago. Instead, he reached the other side. As I reached the end of my... As I reached the end of my patriotic promiscuity, numb, fucked over, and still wondering what happened over there. Wow. Wow. Thank you. When did you write that? A long time ago. I wrote that in, well, let's see. Well, I mean, but you, I mean it was published. Yeah, it was published in 1995. I probably wrote it in 1990 or something, yeah. and after it was over. Yeah. Long over, but it was a thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, and looking back at the, I mean, look, and it was a thing at the time, but then looking back, it's even another thing. It's another thing, yes, exactly. So Yeah, isn't it something, if you had written something about it at the time, it would have been something totally different. It would have been absolutely different, because I couldn't have seen it, yeah. or myself, or them. They were really damaged, and they all sat, they all sat together. They didn't interact with other people very much, because it was that whole, you know, you killed babies, you, you know, that whole thing was going on, too, so. When you finally sat down to write it, did you feel like... Okay, now I'm ready. Like that, yep. that final coming to it. Yes, I yeah. can write this now. Yeah. And you know, again, you have to feel like you can't worry about being judged. You know, you just got to write it. This is what I need to write. Okay, I'm writing that. Yeah, it is kind of a brave. I mean, that's kind of a brave one to. You know, <laughs> you're kind of. You know, what do poets have at stake? You know, what do writers have at stake? I don't know. What do they? When they tell the truth. But, I mean, it's that risk of being judged, like you Mm -hmm. say. But I don't care now. Yeah. Because I am in late middle age. (laughs) (laughs) I was talking with Judy Sarkozy about this, that many of the people in my writing group think they're old, but I only think I'm in late middle age. (laughs) So. <laughs> so yeah. You want me to read something fun? You well, anyway, but it, it almost makes me think. I was thinking about how how um, um, Kurt Vonnegut took a long time to write Slaughterhouse Five, and I just think these things take a long time, you know. Mm-hmm. And even if you try to write about something like that, like why? Why this dynamic? I mean, it's so profound. That dynamic mm-hmm. is so profound. Well, then I, I wrote you know, a and piece. It's, it's novelistic, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's funny that I haven't read. Even though when you when you read it, it rings so true and obvious that that was the dynamic that women, certain women, would feel this way and that guilt and and yet I've never read this in a novel. I've mm-hmm. never read this anywhere else. And I wonder if I mean it's it's. It works in the poetry so mm-hmm. well. Thanks. Did you feel relief right after you finished it and you knew it was done and you were happy with it? Or did you feel like any sense of relief when somebody else read it and it was out in the world? Mm, I can't even remember. No. I don't. I did read I had a. I had a group at uh, Kellogg Community College of Veterans that were writers. And I read this to them. That was real interesting. How did it go? It was mostly men. I think they were going like, well, I wish I'd known you then. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, baby. (laughs) 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 But yeah, so. Yeah, so what, let's let's hear some more. What's left? Oh, I wanted to read about these the I wanted schools. to read this wet thing no I wanted to read this one because this is you I'm working on a book about my friend with dementia and the utensils and stuff and this is one of the poems that is from that and it's called Tabula Rasa after history and current events the teacher announces the chalkboard is dirty but it's just full of echoes of what was written before, cross-hatched with memory. 
She asks a child to erase it. The long yellow eraser swoops phrases away, but leaves dust rearranged into lines that don't mean anything. Stubborn words disappear, but not their after images. Meanwhile, broken pieces of letters sift into the chalk tray like pieces of the globe if it exploded. How quickly 40 years disappear. The enchanted day by the river, blackberry picking, names written in dust. A child doesn't understand what dust is, that it's more than itself, it's everything abridged. The board will not be fully clean until an adult goes after it with soapy water. In a swipe, Vietnam gone. The dogs, Thor and Loki, gone. Nothing is left but streaks that define this new emptiness. Alphabet ghosts watch above the board. No one should clean a chalkboard so thoroughly that nothing is left. <laughs> Thank you. So that's the book I'm working on now. Yeah. But it's really hard to work on the book, which is one thing, and take care of the actual guy, which is another thing, mm -hmm. and then have my husband here, because the guy was my boyfriend 40 years ago. So it's like, if I'm working on this, am I cheating on my husband? What's happening? <laughs> so it's just really awkward. I mean, the whole thing is like, oh my God, what a thing. Wow. I know. It's a lot. What does cheating mean? I mean, like, you know, cheating mm -hmm. on him. Like, I'm emotionally here. Mm -hmm. but, Spending that time? Mm-hmm. Away from... Well, not even away. And he's had... <laughs> and he's always had mixed feelings about that relationship. <laughs> <laughs> about the one he had with you? No, about or the one, yeah, this guy had with me. Oh. And... One time Tom said to me, he said, what if I was tutoring my ex-girlfriend who had dementia in my office alone? I'd say, more power to you. You are a wonderful person. <laughs> That's what I think. Well, it is love. I mean, it's an expression of love. It is. About it. So yes. It's a lovely thing that you have the capacity to, you know. Uh, it's, yeah, love. Yep. It's an interesting situation. <laughs> And you have made much writing, much good writing out of, much have, great writing out of interesting situations. That's the only kind that there are. <laughs> okay, well, we have about eight more minutes, and um, so I wonder if anybody had any questions they wanted to ask Elizabeth. And if not, we'll, we will make you think about whatever I've answered you might want to read. Think about whatever poem in case. What other poem might you want to read? This is my latest book, which when I was looking at the other book seems really, I don't know, it's okay. It's, it's really, cute. I like the little the little square shape. It's I love the square cute. shape. Well, and it allows you to have long lines. Very long lines and very fat lines. <laughs> oh, yeah, fun. And some of them are prose poems. Oh, this, since I mentioned my husband, I'll read this one for him. <laughs> This is called Thanatophilia, or the love of death. Since your impending death moved in with us, quarters are tight. You and she on the couch snuggled up under the pall, your nightly catalog of TV tragedies. You give her all your attention, wanting and not wanting her to tell you what you don't want to know. When I speak, she speaks louder. When I think I'm talking to just you and you don't answer, I know you're both crypt shopping. You snap at me because your patience only extends as far as death. She shares your bed and loves the syncopation of your apnea. She urges you to eat more, points out the dying are thin, that smoking is just not that bad and kind of sophisticated. She says you could exercise a lot less. That might bring the big one on. She's busted up our card game playing by diverting your attention to the omnipresent question, heart attack or stroke. My money's on stroke. Until then, absolutely never stray in your thought from your death. That's what keeps you alive. Oh. <laughs> so is that fanophilia? That is fanatophilia. Fanatophilia. Mm -hmm. And how's it defined? As the love of death. Just the love of death. Okay. <laughs> 
So um, you off, do you often write from prompts? What's your yes. relationship to prompts? In I the use world? prompts a lot because it's just hard. It's daunting to sit down every day and just come up with something. I can't look at the clouds and see things like Kathy can. <laughs> um, so I do use prompts, and in fact, I was really, I was really pleased that the, I don't know if you saw the poem that was online about the deer in the backyard, like that was. That was from a prompt I wrote. It was oh. like, actually it was, I saved this list of stuff of things that kids could do in the summer. And you and it's like, find a picture of this and this and this and this. And so I used all those. And then the last one said, find a picture of people spelling words with their bodies. And I thought, oh, I love that. So I tried to put all that into one poem and it turned out really well. For a little while, you were posting prompts. I know during I was during, doing that during the pandemic yeah, to be a good you. friends of poetry president. Yeah. So. So, but a lot of times you you will you'll have a prompt, but even though your poetry is very personal, the something that prompt in the world will often come hit strikes strike you. It will, very, or it will do nothing for me, and then I just go, "Well, that prompt is fucked up. <laughs> I'm going to write about this, which is what I really want to write about anyway." So, so I like that. Yeah, exactly. Here, don't do that prompt. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Like a prompt can like make you angry enough to write a poem. Exactly. Exactly. I know. Can you actually maybe crankiness? I've been thinking lately. <laughs> I well, I I find myself. I'm trying. I I'm enjoying when I'm cranky now mm -hmm. more than when I was young. I used to think it was bad to be cranky when I was young. And now I'm thinking it actually has a lot of energy in it. Crankiness is wonderful. So do you find that it can inspire poems? Yes. Oh, yes. I think I move a lot of cranky energy. <laughs> I do. And where, do, where, does, where does that come from? Cranky crank energy? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Like Everywhere. Like an argument with your husband or just a, a bad prompt? Oh, just, you know, the people on my street are using... There's a lot of people who believe that a fire pit is just fine to have in a neighborhood. Okay, I, I am, we, as soon as we smell smoke, we have to shut the whole house up. So, you know, that'll piss me off. People to the west of you are, or to the... Oh, don't the bring in that pit. directional <laughs> shit. <laughs> I hate directions. You know what, the, the room is evenly divided, I'm going to guess, on um, people who believe in directions and people who don't. I think we're... I'm sure we I've are because even though I know how to get here, I was trying to use my phone, which was confusing me because I know how to get here. This is amazing. This is such a great topic and for sure the drinking topic for the next one, like the drinking podcast. Bring that up again. The directions, the east and west. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, good. So what, what other, um, do you have any sources of prompts that you particularly like these days? I have a whole bunch of books that I've just gathered over the years and... I use those, or I, you know, sometimes other people's poems. Like Julie Stotes Gosh wrote a poem, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, that was about her relationship with her mother. And it was so beautiful. It was astonishingly beautiful to me. And I just felt like I had missed so much growing up by not having a mother. But it was a fantastic poem. Really beautiful. So it could kind of ins you and so you can riff off of other people's poems mm -hmm. whether they're whether you like them or don't like them. Right, you can riff off them. I don't know. I just. But it also seems that you 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 s never seem to run out, and it's interesting that you say you do use prompts a lot because I'm always marveling at um, how you don't run out. I mean, you never your childhood continually blossoms in your poems. I mean, new, and you're, I'm a person who has no childhood memories. And so, How can I know, you not have that's any? why I have to write fiction. Oh, that's so weird. <laughs> and so I just admire that you see, and it also is, as time passes, different things seem important, I mm -hmm. think. I think that's true. That maybe somehow, somehow some of the more subtle aspects seem, mm -hmm. you know, that come to you later. I think as I've calmed down and no longer have PMS, etc. I am a much more sane person as far as writing goes. PMS was, that was hard. It's terrible. Really? What is I was it? an insane person. What is your PMS? If you mixed being bipolar and PMS, it was just really 
difficult to be around me. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> I'm a wanna, thrower. Do you want to finish with a PMS poem? I don't have any PMS poems. Because <laughs> I've thrown everything against the walls I can. Wow. I love throwing things. Oh, you do? Yes, I'll tell you my favorite throwing things story. I was going, to, I play the piano. I was going to give a lecture at the Gilmore Festival on ragtime music to children. And I was all dressed and ready to go. I had a cup of water in my hand. My husband said something. I don't know what it was, and it just pissed me off. I took the water. I went like this, which dumped it down my back. And then I threw the cup at the wall. It was my favorite cup. It broke. It left a big gouge in the wall. I rolled on a towel, because that's what I was going to wear, god damn it, <laughs> to get it dry. And then I went and did the concert. And then when we had our house painted, this woman said, do you want me to fix that? And I went, no. I need that there in the wall as a reminder. <laughs> is it still there? It is still there. That's great. Bad, bad. <laughs> I, you all know way more about me than you ever, <laughs> ever would want to know. Well, thank you for oh, sharing You're this. so, I knew it would be <laughs> awful. So thank you. So good. Say goodbye, Elizabeth, to the world. Goodbye, oh. Elizabeth, to the world. <laughs> <laughs> and let's eat some more snacks and drink some more wine. Yay. Bye. Okay. Bye.